Well, this evening, as we continue our series on what Presbyterians believe, following the topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come to the topic of good works. And as a starting point this evening, then I'm going to read to you from the Gospel according to John, chapter 15. I'll read the first 17 verses here, and these are all direct quotes. This is a speech, as it were, of Jesus Christ. All the words of the Bible are the words of Jesus, as He is the living Word of God, the incarnate Word of God. But these are words that He spoke during His earthly ministry to His disciples. And so let's attend with reverence again to the reading of God's holy word, as John did not write these things down as his opinion of what he thought Jesus said or should have said, or as his best fallible memory of what Jesus said, but under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that we have here faithfully recorded the very words of Jesus Christ. So again, we read then the word of God, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples." As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And that sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. And let's uh, now pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has revealed so much of your love and of your commandments to us. Indeed, that we know that if we love you, we will obey your commandments. For you are the faithful and glorious God, and it is our place to obey you, our maker. So we pray that you would help us, especially by 
this sermon to be encouraged to obey you all the more, to bear that fruit that shows that we are Christ's people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I were actually expositing the text that we just read, giving you an expositional sermon, for one thing, I would have broken it up into several uh, sections that we would uh, this we would get many sermons out of this passage that we just read. But our point tonight is going to be uh, not to talk about what it means to abide in Christ necessarily, or that we did not choose Him, but He chose us and appointed His disciples that they should go and bear fruit. But in but there's the crux of what we'll be talking about, the issue of bearing fruit. Uh, Several times in this sermon series, you've heard me stress the fact that we are justified through faith alone, but that such saving faith is not alone. Although faith is the only instrument that God uses to justify his people in his sight, Such faith is always going to produce and be accompanied by good works. We've already seen this as we've talked about sanctification to some extent, the grace by which God makes his people more and more like Christ, more and more holy. Jesus said that we would know his servants by the fruits that they would bear. And here, as we just read in John 15, he commands his servants to continue bearing fruit. And if we claim to be his servant but don't bear fruit, we would be like a branch on a vine that's not bearing fruit. We're just going to be cut off and burned. Uh, Some years ago, before I met Kim, I was uh, helping a young woman uh, work in her sister's garden. Uh, My allergies have gotten worse since then. It would be a lot harder for me to do that these days. But I remember there was a beautiful tree covered with little red blossoms in this uh, flower garden or near this flower garden. Uh, There were too many blossoms for it to be a typical fruit tree. Her sister said that she had thought all winter, as they had just moved into that house, that she thought all winter that it was some kind of fruit tree. It looked like one for a while, but it became clear that it was never going to bear fruit. It was not actually a fruit tree. It was some kind of ornamental tree. A lot of fruit trees also look pretty similar when they don't have any leaves or fruit on them. In the wintertime, they look pretty similar. Even when in leaf, a lot of them look pretty much the same, but you can most easily tell what kind of fruit tree it is when you see the fruit actually hanging on it. You can tell that's an apple or that's a pear. That's a peach. You know what kind of tree it is when you see its fruit. Well, those who truly trust in Christ are going to bear fruit that you can tell. That's that's that kind of tree. That's a, a Jesus tree, if you will. That's, that's a plant that belongs to Christ. And the fruit that those who belong to Christ will bear is good works. But we have to be careful how we define that. How do we define good works? Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith actually begins its chapter on good works with a definition of them, and that helps us a lot. It rightly says here, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, 
and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. So mankind calls all kinds of things good, right? People will say this or that is a good work, but we are not to go by people no matter how zealous they are in a, in a man-centered definition of what a good work is by blind zeal or, as the Convention says, pretense of good intention. Now, there are lots of things that are considered good by mankind because of the intentions behind them, but they end up being rather destructive. Uh, probably socialism is a good example of that. People have very good intentions, oftentimes, when they embrace an, a socialist economy, which has proved in every instance that it's been enacted to be destructive to the society that it takes over. No, good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word. In Micah 6, the prophet asks if he can please the Lord by man-devised religion, by things that that mankind has come up with. Obviously, this is good, isn't it? Shouldn't this please God? Not the sacrifices commanded by the Lord, but thousands of rams, things that go way beyond anything God commanded. Ten thousand rivers of oil. He even asked, could I please God by sacrificing my own firstborn child? Those are the ways pagans sought to please their gods and bribe them, if you will. But Micah points out that the Lord defines what is good, not man. And God gets to determine, in that case, how he is worshipped. Micah 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I might say as an aside here that this was a favorite verse of many of those who really rejected God's standard of righteousness in Scripture, they rejected God's definition of good works, but it was a favorite verse of those, many of whom I was in seminary with, who thought that... Uh, they had their own idea of what justice was, and that this verse upheld that, supported them. They were after not God's definition of justice, but what they called social justice. They were what today would be called a social justice warrior, right? But that's not what this verse supports whatsoever. Because, of course, if we make up our own definition of what is good and right and proper, what is pleasing to God, rather than let God tell us what is pleasing to Him. We're doing everything but walking humbly with our God. Walking humbly with our God involves letting Him tell us what is good and right. In some of today's controversies, we might point out that I heard somebody recently say this, that apparently today, according to those on the left, Everyone gets to pick their own pronouns except God. <clears throat> we're, going to, we're going to tell God what his pronouns need to be. No, God defines what is good. Here's what the Lord says when we make up our own standards of good and evil, of right and wrong, without his say-so. Matthew 15, 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah 29, 
In that chapter, the Lord promises to punish Jerusalem because he says in verse 13, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honor me with their mouth while their hearts are far from me. In Romans 1.32, Paul warns of those who give approval to those who practice wickedness. He says in that chapter that they call evil good and good evil. We can call lots of things good. That doesn't make them good. As the confession rightly points out, it's God who gets to define what is good. And it's his very character, in fact, that is the definition of goodness. The confession continues. It says, these good works, so once we've established, good works are what God tells us good works are, and we find that in Scripture. The confession says, then these good works, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of true and lively faith. And by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. So, the confession then says, good works done in obedience to God's command are the fruits and evidences of a lively faith, of a living faith. As James 2.18 says, I will show you my faith by my works. Right? Faith apart from works is dead. He says, but I will show you my faith by my works. And here we just read this evening in John 15 in verse 5, and Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We show our thankfulness, as the confession says, for the salvation that we have by good works. You know, we don't save ourselves by good works. We could never do enough. But when Christ has earned our salvation already, how do we show him that we're grateful for it? Well, we do the things that please him. You know, I don't have the kind of authority or honor, I don't deserve the kind of honor It would be very arrogant of me, in fact, to say, well, if you're my friend, you will obey my commandments. That's not what typical human friendship is. But Jesus belongs in a different place of honor. He is the eternal God. And if we are friends of the eternal God, what are we going to do? We're going to keep his commandments, as he said here in John 15. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? In other words, how can I thank him for the things he's already given me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So I'll worship him. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I'll be obedient. Good works give us not only an opportunity to show our thankfulness, but they also give us assurance that we belong to Christ. John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're able to do those things which please God. And so the more we do things that we know from God's word please God, the more we have evidence that, well, I actually must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we have assurance of salvation. In 1 John 2, verse 3 By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. How do you know that you really know Jesus? 
Well, one big evidence is if you can keep his commandments. We also see, as the confession says, we build one another up by our good works. In 2 Corinthians 9.2, Paul writes of how the zeal of the Corinthians to collect for the relief of uh, those who are suffering in Jerusalem, particularly at the Jerusalem church, this, that has encouraged the churches in Macedonia to do the same. So they, by their good works, encouraged other churches to do good works. We encourage one another. As we learn to do things that are obedient to the Lord, other Christians see and say, oh yeah, that's a good example of what I should do. We're also told here that we, I like that expression, we adorn the profession of the gospel with our good works. As we decorate it, we hang ornaments, as it were, on our profession of the gospel. The gospel is not our doing the good works. But when we preach the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and people see the good works that we do that accompany our saving faith, then it sort of beautifies that profession in the eyes of the world. These are beautifying decorations, as it were, on the gospel that we preach. In Titus 2, Paul writes of how sound doctrine has certain behaviors that accord with it. Reverent behavior, soberness, self-control, and so on. I'm a bit of a book collector. I haven't uh, invested. I have other things to invest in nowadays. Um, So for some years now, I haven't invested the way I used to in in book collecting. Uh, But I, I do for my previous years, from years before I got married and now have little ones. Uh, I have some books that were uh, published by the Folio Society. The Folio Society publishes uh, usually classic literature, good books, but they specialize in binding them beautifully with beautifully adorned covers, often with gold inlay and that sort of thing. Uh, If you like uh, leather-bound things, you would want to go to the Easton Press or something like that for uh, leather-bound books. But the Folio Society also has beautifully bound books. The literature is good, or at least most of it is. They they have some that are maybe not the best, They're not re- literature I'd recommend, but, but the literature is generally good stuff by itself. wouldn't matter if it was in a mass-market paperback. It would still be good literature. But that cover beautifully adorns it. So my my faith in Christ and the gospel itself is beautiful by itself. But our good works adorn it well. They're appropriately accompanying it and beautifying to the message. The gospel is great by itself, but it's fitting to adorn it and accompany it with good works. Just like it's fitting that a great piece of literature would have a nice looking cover with it. Good works also, we're told, will stop the mouths of adversaries. They show that, that we're not hypocrites, in other words, but that we try to practice what we preach. No, we're not going to meet the standard of Christ this side of heaven, but we're going to be endeavoring to. 1 Peter 2.15, it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? Foolish people will often want to claim that Christians are hypocrites and that we don't practice what we preach. And we certainly fall far short of what we ought to do. 
But the more good works we do, the more it puts to silence those who would criticize, stops the mouths of critics. Our good works, of course, most importantly, glorify God. And they prove that we are actually His workmanship, right? That we are His people, that we are His children acting like our Father. That we are those who are made to do His deeds of holiness, as we see in scriptures like Philippians 2.13, for example, where we see, said here, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Or in Ephesians 2.10, where after, so really starting in verse 8, we're told by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then, Paul says, so you're not saved by your works, but, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God doesn't save us because of our good works, but then when he does save us, he has already prepared good works that we should be doing. And that pleases him. Paul tells us in Romans 6.22 that these good works prepare us for everlasting life. Again, they don't earn that everlasting life, but they are practice for it. Because what do you think we're going to be doing in the world to come? We're going to be doing good works, particularly works of worship. But lest we would boast in our good deeds and lack Christian humility and start to say, hey, look at how good I am by the good deeds I've been doing. The confession reminds us their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ and that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them, to will and to do for his good pleasure, as we just read in Philippians 2. Yet, are they not hereupon to grow negligent? So it's not as if we can say, well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, I'll just wait for the Holy Spirit to, to make me do something good. No, we cooperate with that, we make decisions, but we can only make the good decision if it's by the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit is empowering us and enabling us to do it. So it says, we can't be negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So it's not as if uh, we can say, well, let's just uh, wait for some kind of feeling from the Holy Spirit to tell us whether we should do a good thing or not. No, the Bible already tells us what is good and we ought to do it. So John 15, 4 through 6, Philippians 2, 13, Hebrews 6, 11 and 12 tell us these things in John 15 as we read earlier, 4 through 6. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So there, we know it's it's only by abiding in Christ, only by the work of his Spirit, that we can be doing these good works. Philippians 2.13 tells us, For it is... God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, as we already read. And then Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to 
the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there we see that we are not to just grow sluggish and again just wait for some kind of feeling that we should do what's right. Well, we know what's right from God's word and we should just do it. We must not neglect something that we know from Scripture is good simply because we're not conscious of a movement of the Holy Spirit at such a time. You know, you shouldn't need a sense of prompting from the Holy Spirit to visit somebody who's ailing, for example. The Bible already tells us to visit the sick. Moreover, no one ever attains perfect holiness in this life. And so the confession says, they who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. Uh, they're, they're taking a stab there at, at the Roman church <laughs> with that word supererogate. Does the Roman church, Roman doctrine teaches of supererogatory works. The notion that you can actually attain a, a, a point in this life, it's possible, few do, but some could attain a point in this life where they have done all the basics that God requires. They've, they're perfectly righteous in that sense. And then anything they do beyond that is beyond the basic works, super erogatory. And so those are usually people we call saints. right? Of course, in the Bible, saints are every believer. But, uh, <clears throat> but here, you see, there's, there's no way that we could actually do that. The confession says, Luke 17.10, When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. How many of us will even be able to say with any honesty, well, I've done all that was commanded of God, and actually none of us will. Our works are nothing. They simply proceed from the justification God has already freely given us. They proceed from the presence of the Holy Spirit within us that we have by grace. And so the confession says we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God because of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. So we can't give anything to God that he doesn't already have, uh, nor can we pay our own debt for sin. But when we have done all we can, the confession says, we have done but our duty and are unprofitable servants. And because, as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, and as they are wrought in us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight. In fact, when we do good things, we still carry sin with it. And it's only because Christ has forgiven the sins, has brought about the forgiveness of sins for his people that any of our works can count as meritorious whatsoever. So it's only when we've already been saved that God counts those good works as uh, worthy of any reward whatsoever in his sight. But he has to already by his grace to be, to be overlooking our sins. And then the other side of that coin is that it's only by the power of his spirit that we can do those good works anyway. Let that keep you humble. But don't let it discourage you. 
So the confession then says, Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his Son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So because of Christ, your good works are accepted as good by God. So much for good works done by the faithful. They, they do not earn our salvation, but for Christ's sake, God accepts them as good and as worthy of being rewarded, even though they're imperfect, even though we still carry sin with them. How gracious is our God. But then we might ask, what about the apparently good works done by those who are outside of Christ? What happens then? Because there are things that God says are objectively good in Scripture, and it's not only believers that do those things. Sometimes unbelievers do things that are considered objectively good in Scripture. We might ask, you know, what about somebody like Gandhi? What about Socrates? What about Cincinnatus? Anybody heard of Cincinnatus before? Um, <clears throat> George Washington was called the American Cincinnatus. The Cincinnatus was a man who was appointed by the Roman Senate to be a dictator for during a time of crisis. And as the story goes, he, the messengers came to him while he was plowing in his field, and he left his plow and went to take over the leadership of Rome. And he led their armies to victory and, set, and settled the crisis and the people, as a reward for that, wanted to make him dictator for life. They said, just rule over us forever. And he said, nope, and went right back to his plow. <clears throat> That's why George Washington was called the American Cincinnatus, because he could have held on to power had he wanted to, but he determined not to. That's honorable. And yet, Cincinnatus was a pagan. You know, what about somebody like Benjamin Franklin, who seemed to be in many ways... An honorable man, you dig into his life, find some dishonorable things there as well. But somebody who has some characteristics we can admire, but as far as any of us can tell, he never believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the confession deals with that kind of thing. It says, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor in a right end, or nor to a right end, the glory of God. They are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet, that is fitting, to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. So, in other words, we ought to do good works and it's more displeasing to God not to, even if we're outside of Christ. But, as Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So a good work done apart from saving faith still has sin within it and therefore still brings God's righteous judgment. That's why those in Christ are the only ones who can be counted as having truly done good works. If my sins are forgiven, whatever remains of sin in my good works is passed over by God and His judgment and He counts the work as an actual righteous work. So good works show that you are God's child, that you are a co-heir with Christ, the kingdom, if they accompany faith. 
True saving faith is always going to be accompanied by good works. So faith without works is dead. Uh, that is, it's no true faith at all. And works without faith can count for nothing. But only works of faith in Christ are truly good works. But if you are someone, if you are professing faith in Christ, and then you also see that the works that accompany that faith are there, then you can take true assurance that you really are a child of God in Christ Jesus. So be confident, not in your good works, but in the work of Christ, who has accomplished this and whose spirit now resides in you. Let's pray. Faithful God, we pray that you would complete the work that you've begun in us, make us holy as you are holy, that our works may show us indeed to be children of our Heavenly Father. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.